Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, January. I am John Cribbs, co-founder of the Pink Smoke website here with co-founder Chris Funderberg. Hi, John. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well, sir. We're joined by frequent guest and the very beloved Martin Kessler. How are you, sir? Martin Good. Kessler, podcaster, Martin Kessler. We're thrilled to have Thank you. you there. I'm thrilled to be on. Thank you, as always, for having me on. Our first guest for this version of the podcast, the book podcast, we uh, asked you to come on and uh, and bring a recommendation with you, and we're really excited to talk about what you, uh, I know. What you had in mind. <laughs> I have maybe never been so excited to discuss anything in my entire life <laughs> as this book that you suggested we read it is a book it is the first book in the Casca series it is called the eternal mercenary by barry sadler which that my name might sound familiar to you but we're not going to dig quite into it yet as mentioned this was martin's recommendation now on this book podcast where we talk about a pulp fiction of some kind what we do before we dig into it is we recommend an aperitif to pair with it to whet your appetite, to get you in the right mindset for this book before you go into it. And so just before we get into Casca and Sadler and all of this, Martin, we'd like to do, each of us will recommend an aperitif. And let's start with you, Mr. Kessler, to get people into the right mindset for this book. What, are you, what, what pairing are you suggesting? Sure. I'm suggesting the uh, 1995 film, The Prophecy, starring uh, Christopher Walken at that like peak 90s Walken era, but it's got a really great supporting cast. Uh, Elias Coteas, Viggo Mortensen as the devil, Eric Stoltz, uh, Amanda Plummer, a whole bunch of uh, interesting character actor type people. And it's sort of a mix between um, like uh, Christian mythology, angels with um, a sort of pulpy crime kind of feel almost. And yeah. They, they, these angels are having a war with each other, but like through the weirdest, like it's weird to cast Christopher Walken as an angel, you know, it, it's weird to cast some of these people as, as angels. Eric Stoltz. <laughs> you know, they're they're ripping each other's hearts out, and it's very gruesome, and it, it's kind of digging into a lot of the uh, like Christian lore that that's more unusual, and it builds on that. And it's uh, written and directed by Gregory Wyden, who also wrote Highlander, which I figure more people oh. have seen in past as kind of a proto Highlander. But I think like this sort of has more in common in that it's maybe like a really interesting concept in world that doesn't have a clear end point. So the prophecy sort of devolves into being like an exorcist ripoff for its third act. But it's like such a sort of evocative world that's creative and mythology that you can kind of delve into. It's It's got a scene which I really like where they um have an autopsy for an angel and just yeah. <laughs> I, I love anytime that, that, a that film sounds like the worst it's either like hallmark <laughs> family channel programming or a fox documentary <laughs> autopsy for an angel <laughs> no but I, I love like anytime you have a film where they have like an autopsy scene for some science fiction creature mythological creature yeah. and you start getting an idea of like how that anatomy might work like i always found that really yeah. neat and you know they have points like oh there's no rings around his bones it's as if he was just created and uh, like all all this like weird stuff and it, it's a very strange kind of 
film, I guess. But yeah. uh, I, 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 I was telling you, I have to repeat it on the podcast right. before we recorded. My favorite scene in that movie is there's somebody, I, I thought it was Eric Stoltz, <laughs> correct me, gets knocked off a rooftop down and he falls down into an alleyway to go splatting on the ground and right as he's about to hit the ground a car comes tearing around the corner of this alleyway and runs into him and pins him up against the wall crushing him further right so he falls off a building and then gets hit by a speeding car coming around the corner i'm obsessed with the idea that that car was just going to come tearing around the corner and run straight into a brick wall even if Eric Stoltz didn't fall down in front of it there's just this car just going hell-bent for leather straight into a brick wall <laughs> that that angel falling into its death maybe prevented somebody's suicide. It saved them a lot. It saved their <laughs> life. <right? laughs> well, like there's the uh, there's like the zombies in the film, like Adam Goldberg. Like it's uh, people who are killing themselves, and the angels like slow that down, so they become these sort of like zombie servants. And Adam yeah. Goldberg's one, and Amanda Plummer's the other. And it's it, it, <laughs> I love it's just like all the all the like bits of Christopher Walken kind of like perched on things or. Like some of the deliveries are really like unhinged. And that movie. A lot of perching. Perching oriented film. It's a very it's basically the horror version of Wings of Desire, wouldn't you say? Oh, sure. Shit. You could say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there, that's my my uh, appetite wetter. And then later we've got uh, palate cleanser. Do yeah, you we'll have a dessert afterwards? Do you recommend oh, the whole okay. Prophecy trilogy, Martin, or just the first one? Uh, it's, uh, I, I would say, dip your toe in the first one first, and then depending on <laughs> how much you like that film, and if you really want to see more Christopher Walken and really want to see hard, more. Hard you know? disagree. If you're in 2019, <laughs> if you're in 2019, well, even slightly considering watching one of the Prophecy films, watch all three. There's Watch five of them. There's five prophecy films. They had like the, the yeah. There, there's like wow. the later ones that came out. It's like, you know, when Hellraiser had those like late sequels that everyone just kind of forgets exists. It's similar, and I think um, Christopher Walken's not in the fourth and fifth one. It, it's got like some other people. But I'm uh, amazed they got him back for the next two. You know, that's I, I think he he was just having so much fun with that role. Like you can tell he was really into it. Like that. That's the same. Uh, <laughs> He doesn't exhibit a huge amount of quality control in his work. No, well, like that's right around like the addiction. That's right around. Um, I, I just saw it for the first time this year, like the director's cut, 1995, Christopher Walken. Uh, oh, the, uh, yeah, yeah. Wild side, wild side. Yeah, yeah. That, that's like the most unhinged I've ever seen him. So like yeah. it's right around that era. I I don't know what it is about that like lack of control, Christopher Walken. But if you find that compelling, you'll probably find him compelling in the prophecy and jennifer beals is in part two Je well, jennifer beals is in part two yeah yeah oh jennifer beals i know how it yeah. feels to be in love with you um jennifer beals i know how it feels to be in the prophecy too the what do i have my recommendation i'm going to go in a weird direction play any game in the Civilization series, Sid Meier's Civilization. I would oh, yeah. say Civilization Three would be a good thing to play before you get into this. A, uh, this is a book that kind of assumes you have some knowledge and interest in like, uh, you know, like triremes and ordering of phalanxes, right? <laughs> and also this book shares civilizations like it has an amateur's garbled interest in history. Like, if you want to, like... There's a lot of general knowledge. The great, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the Great Library of Alexandria was something, and maybe it was in China, 
Like, you know, <laughs> you'll get that impression by playing the Civilization games where, you know, like uh, the most famous leaders show up, but like who was a leader other than Gandhi in India? Who knows? But also a lot of the names of like the cities and things turn up in it. So you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that city. That's part of the Greek cities, you know, in that civilization. And uh, I think that it's the right mindset. This this book also has a similar interest in like um, like military strategy and just like somebody who clearly likes moving those pieces around the board, you mm-hmm. know, and is like interested in like the history of aqueducts and road buildings in Rome, you know? It's just sure. got this kind of weird amateur autodidactic <laughs> deeply detailed but huge holes in its knowledge feeling that I get that I get from having learned so much about history from that video game so you would know, someone like, have to complete the entire game to appreciate this book no I think you could play the game for an hour and be on the right path <laughs> I, but it's completely addictive Civ 3 you'll play for 18 hours straight and forget to bathe if you like <laughs> These, you know. That's funny. I was going to I was going to recommend Where in Time is Carmen San Diego. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, my recommendation actually, and I I stuck to my completely unfathomable rule that I made for myself last time, which is that I pick the aperitif before reading the book when I just knew barely yeah. a little bit about it. Um, but what I came up with was uh, a comic, The Sandman, issue thirteen, Men of Good Fortune, right by Neil Gaiman and. Michael Zuli, uh, collected in the uh, the Doll's House, the great collection, and this is a one-off story about that's also derived sort of from the Wandering Jew myth, where it's a soldier in the Hundred Year War, who death and dream over here, uh, stating uh, that dying is basically a habit of humans, right, and that's something that people don't necessarily have to do. So death grants him eternal life, and dream arranges to meet uh, him in the same tavern in the East End at once a century to see if he's tired of living yet. So it's just this story that jumps 100 years from the 100 years war, you know, to modern day with Dream meeting this guy whose name is Hob Gandling to see, you know, what his experiences have been and, you know, how he feels being an immortal. So theoretically, you know, sort of the same kind of idea, although after I've read it, of course, it's a wildly different story. Yeah, certainly the kind of thing I also imagined this book might be because it was recommended to us by Martin Kessler. <laughs> Martin, <laughs> Martin, what is this book actually? Would you like to talk about the Casca series in this book and why you brought it to us? Okay. Well, you guys specifically said Pulp Fiction yeah. when you were yeah, this, asking. This, this and I, I think this falls thing. under that umbrella. Perfect, and like, perfect, it's perfect like, thing. in some ways, it kind of reminds me of like 1930s, like, Conan type folk fiction but it's got this sort of 70s mean streak to it which like it's very cynical and like ultra macho in that Frank Miller sort of way and um, I mean I can do a summary of the plot if you'd like if yeah that would start, start okay. with the summary right. the, the plot of this first book the eternal mercenary okay so th- this one it's almost like the um, the pilot episode for the series you know it's trying to explain the backstory and kick everything off because after that it's Casca on you know, where the world is Carmen San Diego adventures. Uh, so it, it starts off in, uh, during the American Vietnam War, this soldier's brought in, he's got his brain exposed, but he's not dead and he's actually healing. And the doctor examining him finds a bronze arrowhead in his leg. And the, the favorite object of a certain kind of person to find. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> There's all these arrowheads in this field. Right. Um, 
and uh, yeah, it just so happens that he he's like a pseudo expert on uh, history, and uh, that that sort of leads into a flashback where you find out where the soldier came from, and his name's Casca Longinus, and he um, it's his uh, duty to uh, I guess watch the executions on Golgotha. One of them happens to be Jesus. He stabs Jesus to just make sure that he's dead, but then he's told, uh, oh, you know, what you are, you will remain until we meet again, and then Jesus dies, and Casca cannot die, which he figures out sort of quickly when he um, he sleeps with a dancing girl and gets stabbed by his officer, and he should be mortally wounded, but recovers quickly. And he yeah, drinks some of Jesus' blood, too. Right, right, it, it trickles down, and I noticed that because I'd like to think that uh, the guys from Demon Knight were also there gathering blood in the, the flasks that they're going to eat for that movie at the they're, same they're time. All, they were all it's there. all happening at once. Everyone needs that, that sweet Jesus blood. Uh, so after that, he, he becomes enslaved and uh, given a chance to win his freedom back by... Uh, well, he first goes to a well, copper okay. mine. He goes to a copper mine for like 60 years. He's like there as the, you know, he's there during, um, I guess it's under Emperor Tiberius. And when he leaves, it's under Nero. Like, so it's uh, quite a long passage of time. When he leaves, it's it's under Claudius. It's under Claudius. And then Nero comes when he's gladiator. Right. There are big, big sort of time jumps. Uh, A lot of this is sort of like told in broad strokes. So... Um, yeah, the yeah, first book covers it, roughly after, 170 years, I think. <laughs> from when right, he, right. Yeah, yeah. Just like as a side note, like I think you can kind of, like referring to some of those like holes in the knowledge, I think like he tries to gloss over some of the gaps in his own knowledge writing this by just like writing things in a really broad way <laughs> every now and again. Uh, but anyway, so like he, um, Casca's off to be a gladiator. He uh, learns martial arts from a man from China <laughs> and uh, he, he's trying to win back his freedom by being a gladiator. And that's sort of the middle yeah. chunk of the, of the book. You know, a lot of it's built up with um, like him in opposition to this other gladiator, Jubela, who's like a stereotype out of like well, the 19th century. This is one of the things that needs <laughs> like, to be addressed at the Right, beginning. right. Uh, of course. Fucking racist. It, it's super yeah. racist. It's I, I have a feeling Sadler... Anti-Semitic, unabashedly I, Unabashedly. Unabashedly. In like a 70s... Kind of, it just, I recognized it from the South in my youth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a very thoughtless, like... Well, the Jews killed yeah, that, Jesus, like, of course. Like, throughout the entire book, it, it's just like, like, I don't know if when I first read it, I was, like, giving some leeway to, like, okay, that's the point of view of this, like, Roman whatever. But, like, going back and reading it now, like, it's, it's like the omniscient narrator is super yeah. racist, too. <laughs> like, the, the whole thing's, it's pretty, pretty blatant. And, uh, like, I, I have a feeling, like, Sadler, if you asked him he would have been the kind of racist who would say, oh, I'm not racist. I hate all people equally. Like, I think it's like that yeah. brand well, but, but it's also, racism. you know, we talked a little bit about him being some kind of autodidact. Right. This is a book that through and through, uh, he's talking about a lot of things I don't know about. He's not touching yes. on any of my areas of expertise. But when you read it, you go, I don't know about that. That's how that worked. No, well, like, yeah. there's parts where, like, he's talking about Casca fighting with the Germans and, like, his description of like their religion and stuff it's like viking kind of like it's way off and yeah. like, well, like but that's, but he, describes, he describes jubala 
repeatedly as being a Numidian, right? right? right. Numidia was North Africa. They were a Berber civilization. Yes. And I think and I think they I'm were over Nubian, the right? Is what it is. I, I think he got them mixed up. I, yeah. <laughs> so. And he keeps calling them jungle beasts and saying the jungle, god the dark jungle. gods. Yeah. And, it's, hearts. and it's like does you know like Saint Augustine was a Berber. They were like right. Iceland, it's like Algeria and Libya, like that kind of person is yes. what Numidia was. So yeah, I think he means probably Nubian. You're right. I, I, that didn't exactly. even occur to me. I was just like, "What the fuck is he talking?" Like, yeah. I know enough to be like, "This, this you're getting something." There, wrong. There's something wrong here. I know. Yeah. Well, there's something to me too. You know, like at the beginning, like right off the bat, when we're in Vietnam, there's you know, a guy who's looking at you know Dr. Goldman and saying, you know, thinking, "Ah, oh, that filthy Jew, I'll get him." And you're thinking, "Oh, well, this is like." some black market you think at first it's like in the voice yeah. of that character but like it's so consistent throughout like well exactly that's the thing, no, no, the thing is like you're like that's a black mark that's like black market profiteer he's a bad guy he's trying to establish he's this racist asshole but then throughout the book when things recur like that and you're trying to like i'm i'm going to give the benefit of the doubt i'm going to say he's just showing that this particular mindset of cosk at the time is racist he'll grow maybe he'll you know learn that jews aren't evil or whatever but no, the dialogue <laughs> is all. The thing is, the dialogue is all contemporary. He doesn't yeah. you know, ride uh, anything I mean, but like the way people talk in the 1970s. And for me, I could not escape. That, all that's this one stuff. thing I actually kind of liked about it is just that sort of non-formal. Like, I'm not going to do some sort of pseudo Shakespearean yeah. thing. Like, people say, like, cut the shit. They say, like, yeah. Well, he's truly yeah. trying to contemporize it. I think that's right. Right. And it, it has to be intentional. He can't understand that. No, I, I, I think like that's definitely intentional, but like it's um, so often you read these historical books. I like a lot of the kind of, you know, historical fiction novels. It's written in this like Cecil B. DeMille style dialogue, like a lot of the time, and they can be really (laughs) kind of grating and annoying. And you sort of get the feeling that that kind of removes you from maybe how people might have actually been in history. So I think like by, contemporizing it that's one of the things i sort of liked about it like everyone kind of talks as if they're uh lee army in full metal jackets you know it, that's <laughs> i agree <laughs> i agree i like yeah. the contemporary dialogue a lot my favorite line in the whole book was when casca says that bullshit don't play with me <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't ready for that at all um but no, it's impossible so to, it's impossible to shake though the you know attitudes towards racists when well, like, it seems that, like it's a contemporary set thing with like this people, dialogue bond through racism like the uh, Chinese character Xu and uh, Casca like they're just like throwing racist jabs at each other and by the end it's like <laughs> oh I got some sweat in my eyes like I'm, I'm crying and he's like you're like a son to me <laughs> like all they yeah. did was just like insult each other and like make judgments about how weird they look and yeah it, you know it's a uh, you know, I, I think it, it's supposed to be that, like, like rush hour hey, we're tough guys, we're just going to, like, insult each other and, like, rough play and, like, hey, yeah. that's how we bond kind of a thing. But it, it's, like, so jarring sometimes when you read this. I counted. Okay, so, like, later in the story, there's a brief love story, I guess. That's like so weird. Okay, I counted. There's more words dedicated to Jubala's sharpened teeth than there are to the love story. Wow, <laughs> uh, Nita or Nada? I, I think Nita, right? Nita, her, her right. Name is, yeah, uh, like that goes by so fast, and it's so glossed over. Like it, well, that it, last it section like... of the book plays like 
and look for these stories to actually be told in future books. Right, that, that's sort of the, yeah. Play, like, maybe someday in the future, I'll actually tell you this goddamn story rather than mentioning a story happened. Right, and I don't, like, it almost, to me, like, just reading it this time, it felt like, <laughs> when you have to like rush in an essay and you sort of like phone in the last bit or like I uh, like Sadler I don't want to write this like love stuff that's lame like I'll yeah they fell in love it was the love of his life she's dead now he's gone by like that's, that's sort of the uh, the feeling I had like it just felt like a rush to get through that you know the book is structured so poorly yes it has yeah. the two book in sections about Vietnam which is fine right then it goes to him with Jesus uh, he gets sent, sold into slavery. He gets passed around between masters. One decides to make him a gladiator, and he can win his freedom by becoming a gladiator, right? And by mm -hmm. getting the wooden sword, by being a champion. And that's so much of the book. <laughs> and that's so much of the book. He gets the wooden sword. This mm -hmm. is going to be a spoiler through thing. And then immediately, like literally one page later, he, oh, he gets, messes it up. <laughs> he messes it up and gets put back into slavery and is now along and is now an oarman on a ship, like when the book should have ended. Yeah. Like right when you think, okay, now yeah, this will be interesting. Now that the he's a, Absolutely. Now that he can be out of slavery, what does he do with this knowledge? Because he hasn't had to do anything with it so far. He hasn't had to make any decision because he's been enslaved. So he just has to do what people tell him. And it's like, okay, now the world is open. And he immediately gets enslaved again. And it goes into this um, long, long section about a siege of a city Okay. So he puts the city, uh, the Parthian city, uh, at siege at the end. And that's a huge section of the book. And it's all of this incredible military detail mm -hmm. that is divorced from any characters we've met before this time, anything we could possibly give a shit about. And it's so strange that it takes this section. And then he has like a big breakdown after the battle. And it's like, what is this? Why is this here? But like, I know there's like a this? history channel watching demographic that just like lives for that stuff, you know, who, yes. Yeah. Like, I think that's probably why that, that's part of the reason why it seems to have such a strong fan base. Like uh, it seems to be the reason that it exists, right? People who love yeah, military yeah. history, people have uh, this series history. of books. We should mention, I guess at some point yeah. that this is a 49 book series. That's yeah. Yeah. book 50s on the way. Since, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's been written since 1979. That's the book we're talking about. The first one, yeah. the eternal uh, mercenary and Sadler wrote, uh, maybe 22 of them. It's a question of like which ones he were ghost written even then. And then yeah. after he died, they were taken over and now we're up to almost 50 books in this series. So each one, the Some idea is that he's in a different point of history. Including so, the two that were kicked out of the series for massive for plagiarism. <laughs> and Some of them, it's like, uh, I was looking on the forum, it's, you know, there were no plagiarism suits or anything like that, but it's pretty much acknowledged that they're ripoffs, like pretty close ripoffs of other books, other stories. Th th this one wasn't the first one I read. I got Casca the Phoenix as just like a bookstore find. Yeah, which is that, that one's uh, in the series. Right, and it's set like immediately before this one. So it kind of worked well to read that one before reading, going back and reading the first one because it was like okay, like this is Cascade Vietnam, now you start the next book and okay, this is kind of the backstory, this is like the prequel, you know, it, it's, I don't know if they were necessarily written in the order that they were released, like, or if, 
you know, maybe certain ideas were like sketched out and then filled in because it almost feels like, you know, okay, like I have a broad timeline. I'm going to sketch up this section for this novel and this section for this novel. Like, I don't know if maybe that's how it was planned, but it kind of feels like that. Like it does have this open-ended quality, which is also why it's still going on. Like, um, you know, I was thinking like, if you tried to translate it to a film, uh, it wouldn't be Highlander because Highlander has like a clear conclusion you know it's a game they kill each other there can be only one it's it sort of naturally brings you to a climax like Casca the whole kind of tragedy of the character or the whole premise is that he can't die he's never going to change he's never going to grow you know at that one point in the novel he's like cursing to the heavens like is this all there is for me is this all I really am and the answer is yes you know like that's you and know and that's what some people like series, yeah. is that it just keeps putting him in different famous <laughs> and it gets like increasingly preposterous like you look at some of the, the well it's you know, like he's in the israeli army i haven't read them there's a few that are quite questionable yeah. like uh the panzer I have that soldier one. where he yeah. fights yeah he fights on the german side and, yeah, where he hitler. shoots hitler in the bunker and, and, and or the confederate where he fights on behalf of the confederacy just yeah. to put you in the mindset of <laughs> there's any question about what the audience wants to be reading, right. you know, it's that like he's a mercenary, you know, taking on the Khmer Rouge, you know, like very strange. Uh, we'll get more into that. I, I think you're right. Like, it makes a lot of sense that one of his best friends was the owner of Soldier of Fortune magazine. That, that makes so much sense. Um, I, like, I think, you know, you... <laughs> At a first glance, without knowing too much about it, you could think like, oh, maybe there's like a romance to Casca always being on the losing side of history and you could kind of repeat that, but that's not it. I think you're right in that the people who read these novels and who make sure that they continue to be published clearly want to see them in certain scenarios and on certain sides. And uh, I, I think like a, you can sort of extract a political understanding of where these people might be coming from just by you know, where they keep putting Casca throughout these <laughs> stories, it seems like. I haven't, like I said, I've only read three of them, but um, that that seems to be just like from the few I've read and kind of knowing what the rest of the series is, you know, it doesn't seem like there's much room for deviation outside of that. Like, you know, what, I, could I, it be? what could it be? This is what no. I'm saying is when you described it to me, I was picturing something like, like a Philip K. Dick, like a person traversing across the giant expanses of time and an idea about it being like the weight of history and the weight of time. But that, that would be like a real literary story. And I think like this concept, for me, that like there's something very interesting in that idea of, okay, the, the guy who pierced Christ can never die and he can fight forever. Like that's sort of an interesting yeah. concept and it's more just like but it's clearly you know, it's the work the... of a former soldier working through <laughs> his incredible issues and yes. fighting with his deep-seated like war boner right. like it's so it's so strange right and, and not what i was expecting it's truly i want to convey to the audience it's truly <laughs> sleazy only something that's like on your friend's dad's bookshelf. <laughs> you know what I mean? It has that, like, where you look at it and you're like, what is it? Yeah, his dad has, like, a Reagan for president bumper sticker in his book, and you're like, I'm not comfortable going over there anymore. I agree I mean, that, like, you know, it has that quality to it, but, like, it seems like the intention is, like, 
uh, a nerdy kid who loves fantasy novels can get it for his dad for Father's Day, and it'll be like their bonding thing, like their their middle ground that they can meet in. Like their his dad. John, who John loves would you like to say that your dad is is in the military <laughs> and you're a nerdy kid who likes science fiction? I already like got I already got him the full fiction. series for Christmas. I'm all set. Um, <laughs> like for me as a reader like the stuff I'm interested in, it is that sort of fantasy mythology type stuff. And it's like more that, that concept really than anything like my, my interests, uh, you know, of course I'm interested in history and war kind of comes along with that, but I'm not specifically interested in military history. So a lot of it can be like dry and not character based and kind of boring, but like, you know, maybe 10 years out from when I read it and you guys asked, you know, what I'd want to recommend. It was like, Hey, what, what's that story about the, you know, Roman soldier who could never die, like that kind of stuck with me. So, oh my like, God, I something. need to explain to you, I'm so happy I read this. That's, okay, I, I don't know I, if I'm making clear. <laughs> I am so happy to have this thing I, in my life like, now. I, I, you know, I, I think it's telling that like I, like I didn't remember half of this shit, like going back and reading it, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, so much of this, uh, it, it, like really like the, the concept is the thing that stuck with me. And I think that obviously is the, thing that you know you can yeah. build 50 books out of but like it becomes like i guess for people who keep reading all the way through 50 casca stories it's like a tv show where it's that hey that character i like in a new scenario new situation but it basically all ends the same starts the same you know yeah, like it, it's mean, almost I, like, I, new, wanna, like, I, I want to read them not all of them but start picking and choosing ones that sure. sound like they must be the craziest there's, if you want my copy of Casca the Panzer Soldier, I will give it to you. <laughs> but I, uh, you know what? I do. Like I, I think you know what you said about if it was going to be this like Philip K. Dick story. Like you could make a real novel of, you know, this soldier of Vietnam, and you know, is it flashbacks or is he what's well, he remembering? Like you could do like a real yeah. thing with that concept. And this like I've almost read almost like uh, Carlos Fuentes Terra Nostra. You know what I mean? It's almost like that, you know, like a giant literary achievement that expands across the entire expanse of time in which characters appear and reappear. There's plenty of books like that, for sure, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I can see the literary version easily. It has more in common, maybe, at the end of the day, with, like, uh, you know, again, like a Frank Miller comic book or, you know, like... That's a perfect anthology. I was thinking of 300 the whole time I was reading it. (laughs) Right. Uh, 22, I, I mean even from somebody who, you know, is not, is no, no kind of expert on the Roman empire. I could like see how he was playing fast and loose with some facts, you know, the big, the big siege of Tessaphon at the end in uh, 164, which was, you know, Vidius Cassius was uh, the general attacking the city. It's interesting because, you know, he didn't destroy the city the way that they say at the end of the book, he, you know, uh, actually just invaded the city and was there for a while and then abandoned it. It wasn't until like much later, like you know, ten or twenty years later, that they actually came to the city and took everybody as slaves and every and everything. It wasn't that same battle, it wasn't the same army or anything. But he's just kind of putting all this stuff together. So I think he kind of, even though there's a lot of military detail and you know, clearly a lot of name dropping throughout the entire book, he still doesn't mind you know fudging the facts a little bit. No, no I, yeah. I thought I thought the big payoff. I just don't think he knows. I think I thought I, the big think, payoff, right, was that because Avidius Cassius was ultimately murdered by one of his own centurions, I thought that Casca was going to be the one to kill him. Right. You know, I thought that was the whole reason you, you would think that Cassius that, in the first place, but you would take a payoff from that. actual history. But no, like I, yeah. I think he doesn't know, and like even his sources, you can kind of start to 
pick up on what his sources are just by his phrasing. Like uh, he clearly he knows Suetonius' Twelve Caesars because like his physical description of Nero, it's almost word for word straight out of that. But like Suetonius, it, it's like beautiful gossip okay history like you know there's also like descriptions of uh satyrs and gods like kind of mixed in with real history with a lot of extra gossip so it's like okay you've probably read that but like i don't think you've actually researched this it's like you read it 20 years ago and now you're trying to remember what yeah. <laughs> what, what that was you know like you kind of get that feeling like he just has this backlog of general knowledge that he keeps drawing on and he's maybe somebody who knows like a little bit about everything but nothing too yeah. in depth outside of like the, the right. strategy and right. the, the point of the series so that, is definitely not yeah. to like get the details right you know? no like it, it's more like I, I think this but idea that the soldiering that. doesn't it's change it's an insanely detailed thing that's the thing yes, the book yeah. is caught up in talking well, about those because uh, like strategy doesn't change over yeah. centuries like so if you know a lot about strategy like the historical setting those details aren't actually the important part, I think, for this series. That's the impression I got this time. It's like the strategy and the tactics and the fighting, that's the part that he knows a lot about. The rest, it's just set dressing. So you can put Casca in a hundred different time periods and the strategy and tactics and weapons and stuff like that will he'll know about. And then like everything else is kind of just in the background. I think it's not that important even though that's kind of the stuff i wish was important yeah. because like it's interesting to see maybe how somebody's perspective changes over time or doesn't or you know like just imagining you know within this novel alone what somebody living through all that would notice and observe and how much would change like that would be the really interesting stuff well, but it doesn't a, really go there who i yeah. was thinking is spectacularly lacking in imagination. Like he's working yes. in copper mine for years before he says, wait, what happens if there's a cave-in and I get buried alive? Oh no. It's like you've right. been in there 15 years. What have you been thinking about? You know? Yeah, I had the and same it, thought. Yeah. I I, yeah. I I thought I wanted again, I wanted to give the book like the benefit of the doubt by thinking like he was going for an individual versus unit idea, like a military idea that this guy needs orders to know what to do. Like he can't do anything by himself. He's a soldier. He needs to be within that like unit to know what he's supposed to do because you're right. He literally is a slave. He's resigned to be a slave for years and years and years. And you're thinking, you know, you're immortal. You know, you can't die. You can certainly fake your own death or kill the overseers or something, you know, and it doesn't do anything until somebody comes out to help him in every case, you know, someone has to help him out. And I want to say, and like, it's reflecting on like being an officer and a general later, like towards the end of the novel. It's sort of like, yeah, I'm never going to be that. I'll, I'll like, I'm fine just to be a soldier forever. Like, he's sort of the eternal grunt, you know? Yeah, that's why? Kind of why? Like, I mean, the, the book doesn't like yeah. make it clear, but you feel like that must be it, right? That because Jesus tells him at the beginning of the book, you yeah. remain what you are, you know? That, that's what it is. Like, if he doesn't have a war to fight, he literally has nothing to do. Except, you know, row the gallery. Like the, That's all he's got. The Shu character sort of points out, like, you know, like, are your tastes going to change as you grow older? Are you going to, like, mature? And, like, no, like, that, that's not who he is. He's never going to mature this character. He's never going to really get past that. He just can't die. That's the only thing. So, like, it's an interesting, I guess, concept. But, you know, maybe, maybe as far as reading, like, not the most compelling route to deal with immortality. But, like, there are other things that sort of makes me think of, or um, even like when we were talking about Berlin Alexanderplatz, that, uh, you know, bit where Franz Biberkopf comes back and, you know, they 
think he's the, the the wife of the dead soldier thinks that he's like the soldier come back or you know you sort of read about these stories that kind of pop up here and there like i think it was maybe already out in the ether and he just sort of formalized that concept and created a mythology around it building on the sort of christology and uh you know that's kind of where the novel comes from but like i you know i know um, like for instance the film Patton, he sort of speaks poetically about like hey i was on this battlefield you know i was here i was here like that that scene where Patton's going through the ruins you know but that's like a poetic conceit he doesn't mean it literally uh i've read another book where it was like also just this sort of throwaway thing i was trying to remember what it was and i I'm not positive. I, I was going back and trying to figure it out, but like, you know, there's these soldiers on the Eastern front and, you know, one of them's like, Hey, let's, let's go back this way. I went through with Napoleon. I made a deal with God. I can't die kind of a thing. And uh, like, I think it was a novel written in the 1950s. So like, I, I sort of wondered, you know, maybe it's not that original Casca, but it's sort of formalizing it and, building on it i want to i want to make i want to give the benefit down saying that that's what he's up to but i just don't know if he had that level of thought you know so let's let's talk about he the author the person Mm. we've been dancing around barry sadler john i read this entire book not realizing did you guys that he was the man who wrote ballad of the race yes it is that (laughs) Barry Sadler. <laughs> when I found that out, I was like, holy shit, that doesn't make this make more sense. This makes it make less sense. To me. If you asked, if somebody told you that the guy who wrote Ballad of the Green Berets wrote a novel, what would you think it is? Like, I, Tons of descriptions where every, every woman is a dancing girl with a heart-shaped ass. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing too. Like, what she should spill his seed. It has those gross descriptions yeah, yeah. too. Like historical novels are like literally a dime a dozen. Like you can find so many, uh, like also contemporary Vietnam War stories that were written in the seventies, like around this time, that are very similar in language, and like they just don't have that kind of fantasy hook that I find makes this sort of memorable. Like it, it does feel like a step above a lot of the kind of fiction of that era, war fiction, historical fiction that is you well, know sort of similar yeah. and not as memorable. You know, it's sort of Yes, it yeah. definitely belongs to the genre. It reminded me of the Destroyer series the, that Remo Williams is from. That's a similar, like, incredibly long series with incredibly ludicrous <laughs> opponents in it, where, like, there's, like, a white guy who's trained by a little Asian man and a special kind of karate that almost makes him, like, magic, <laughs> you know? Like, it's this, the, it, it has a similar, like, mm-hmm. and similar just sort of, like, griminess to it you know like real man stuff like uh, from the 70s but like not men you wanted to know you know what i mean no like i was sort of trying to picture this as a movie and it's impossible without thinking of that like late 70s like graininess like you can just picture the film stock they it should be shot on and the like you know we we brought a special effects artist over from italy to do the spear going through the head kind of yeah 70s stuff like you can just like, picture what it should feel like yeah. it's, it's like that kind of no, grimy coliseum seats like 300 people shot on the set of battle for the planet of the apes <laughs> exactly 
<laughs> like uh, you, you read on the forums, people talking about like, oh, if they make a Casca movie or Casca TV series, and I'm like, I don't think it would ever be good. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe it would make a good sort of weekly thing, but uh, it, like, it, it should never be like A grade. It, it should be like B actors and B special effects. And well, that's I'm sort really, of the really curious about because <laughs> Sadler's story is just starting there. For those of you who don't know, right. Ballad of the Green Braves was a massive number one hit in 1966 at sort of second uh, most high- popular song of the year behind I'm a Believer by the Monkees. Second most popular yeah. of 1966. Yeah. Which is like a and huge year for music. Huge year and like Vietnam era, you know, not quite to where things are going sour. Still an era in which a song about how awesome the Green Berets are could be a huge hit. Sort of uh, <laughs> uh, almost without controversy in some way. Drops um, at exactly the right time because you know what the first big hit of 1967 is? For what it's worth by Buffalo Springfield, the wave has completely changed. The tide has come in and everyone is anti-Vietnam all of a sudden. So if that that song had come out six months later, you know, it would have been completely. Yeah. <laughs> but in the, in the 60s, he was a symbol of a certain kind of like squareness like real american type you know he's one of like, like the original shows real americans thinking, yeah. like <laughs> yeah went on ed sullivan in his green beret uniform exactly yeah. Yeah. it's great yeah. but uh he oh let me ask you guys real quick what connects casket to john waters uh huh on the episode of The Simpsons, guest starring John Waters, he's looking through Homer's oh, LP yeah. collection, and ba- the, the the album that it's on, Ballads of Green Berets, is one of the albums he sees. So it's yes. had a cameo on The Simpsons. That's how popular it had to have been. Yes, when he's going through Homer's terrible records, <laughs> right. and it includes like the Doodle Town Pipers. That's actually the first I ever heard of this song because I went in high school and like found as many of those terrible albums as I could because I was like, I wonder what those are. <laughs> and uh, it's it's deserving. It's such a strange song. <laughs> it's such a strange, like, it's just about, like, those Green Berets, they're the best. They die in the <laughs> army, but then their, you know, sons grow up to be Green Berets too. He also has this insane song, which I just found and I was sharing with John and Martin, oh, the called The A-Team, <laughs> which is his follow-up hit. He was a classic one-hit wonder, although The A-Team got to, like, 30th on the Billboard charts. And it's in, it's nothing. The song is genuinely just like twelve men invincible. <laughs> the A team. It's just about like these twelve Green Berets who you can't beat, can't get a Green Beret down. And did we mention we he was a Green mention, Beret himself? Yeah, that he was a very Green was, in yeah. Vietnam for six months gets injured by a shit smear punjai stick. Right, develops an infection in the leg, and it's while he is. Uh, in the hospital that he starts, you know, he takes out the guitar, starts writing these songs. The original version of Bow of the Green Berets was like 12 verses. <laughs> he hooks up with the guy who wrote the novel, The Green Berets, Robin Moore, who, you know, helps him work it, you know, get it down to a workable song. 
And they become like lifetime collaborators at that point because like the movie, the John Wayne movie that comes from the book and everything, Robin Moore writes the introduction to his autobiography later on, Sadler's autobiography. Yeah, the John Wayne Green Beret, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, all, it's all tied in in this mid to late 60s resurgence of, you know, the popularity of these soldiers. But yeah, then he has the A-team, which, yeah, you said, like you said, it reaches like number 30, but then, like I said, the tide turns and everything and he's done. Well, wait, 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 we're missing one important thing. Oh, when he murders a guy? No, 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 you're jumping ahead of the story. Sorry about in that. 1968, in 1968, he co-stars in like the Telly Savalas role in a Dirty Dozen ripoff called Dayton's Devil in 1968. Starring Rory Calhoun. Starring Rory Calhoun. I have and, never, and Leslie Nielsen. I have always been curious about it since I am quite the... Uh, connoisseur of men on a suicide mission movies behind enemy lines <laughs> but he plays a character named barney barry with leslie nilson and rory rory Calhoun, directed by the great jack shea who I'm so, that, sure so that was know. his that was his his banking in on his celebrity he has a few acting roles here and there on television then he moves to nashville and starts writing the Casca books and it's right before the first one gets published that he kills a country music songwriter named Lee Emerson, who he alleged was... Lee Emerson Bellamy. Yeah, but he went by Lee Emerson when he was managing uh, country singers. And he ends up uh, shooting him in the head because he claims that uh, Lee Emerson was stalking his girlfriend who he had (laughs) previously... (laughs) Yeah, claims he had a gun. They don't find a gun. And so he serves a full except for, except for the one that that Sadler planted. He planted a gun on him. <laughs> he planted a gun on on uh, Lee Emerson, and they saw through it immediately. Which again, if you told me that the authors of these books had like straight up murdered somebody, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I would have uh, jumped right in. But I'm also kind of not surprised. In like a Nashville parking lot. Well, he gets his comeuppance. He gets his comeuppance. Yep. Spends a full 21 days in the Nashville workhouse. <laughs> he was sentenced to 30-something, but... Yeah, uh, not even to jail. To not the fucking workhouse. <laughs> well, it was a country music singer. Well, he was. He was clearly... He was, And it was in a dispute over a woman. It's just like the Casca book. Look at that. Has anybody ever put this together before? I'm sure they haven't. See, Barry Sadler should have written a song about this. That would have gotten him back on the charts. (laughs) One man, invincible. Freedom's just a wooden sword away. Yeah, exactly. I think we should be ghostwriting the Casca books now. I'll just throw it out there, Mark. (laughs) How long could one take to write? We've got a week. (laughs) So, John, it sounds like... So, he's got... Yeah, so, John, it sounds like everything's going up for this guy. What else happened? Right, so, you know, he gets a slap on the wrist for shooting somebody in the head, an unarmed man in the head, and planting evidence. 21 days in the workhouse, so things are going swimmingly. He decides, for some reason, to move down to Guatemala City in the mid-'80s to continue writing the costume. Great place to be in the mid-'80s. And it's shot himself while sitting in a taxi cab in 1988. People don't know if somebody actually shot him or... He shot himself by mistake if his gun went off. It's still not sure. But basically, he languishes for a year, comes back to the States. The soldier of fortune buddy uh, brings him back to the States, uh, pays his bills. And uh, he's he's quadriplegic. He has severe brain damage and lives about a year before dying of cardiac arrest. This is the strange ending of the creator of Casca. Yeah, my favorite 
part about the story about that, which is this is from Wikipedia because I'm not some expert working from, you know, Barry Sadler. In the Wikipedia thing talking about his death, it says he was finally released. Okay, after emerging from the coma, Sadler was a quadriplegic and had suffered significant brain damage. He was finally released in January 8, 1989, but he was reported missing by his family. He was found a few days later in time to be present at a competency hearing. How does a quadriplegic with severe brain damage go missing for a couple days? It's like the, Agatha, it's like the Agatha Christie story. <laughs> what on earth? He was reported missing by his family. Oh, we thought we had him. Our quadriplegic with brain damage who just got out of the coma. Oh, we do. I'm sorry, we do. He'll be at the competency hearing. I'm sorry. Did you watch the uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, was it just me who thought that the uh, the man with no arms and no legs was going to somehow crawl his way back to civilization and get revenge on Liam Neeson in a surprise <laughs> twist at the end of that story? Uh, no, I didn't think of that, but I... No, okay, all right. But, but that's, that's why I need your help writing the new Casca book. Right, right. Casca, <laughs> what if they chop off his arms and legs? What'll happen? Will they grow back? They grow back. He gets well, they, at the beginning the of the ones... book. He's been hit by a shadow. No, no. By a will his original like arms and legs like fly back to him eventually, or will he just it's grow new long. ones? He'll it grow new long. ones. He'll grow new. Or, ones. Well, what if they kind of in half Highlander right down the middle? <laughs> yeah, right down the middle. Like, will you have two Cascas? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I think you just this wrote your book, Martin. It's right there. Two Cascas. <laughs> two Cascas. Casca has to fight himself. No, 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 no. Yeah, look, look scientifically one half of the Costco would die and the other one would regrow the right half. Let's be scientific about this. <laughs> it's what Sadler would want. The Sadler's book has got one. to be mentioned. <laughs> but wait, let me ask Martin. Martin. Like Overlogic work pseudoscience like that. Kafka's <laughs> book itself is full of like, let's be scientific about this nonsense. But like, Martin, as you're, a, you're, you're a history fan. Where would, what era would you set your, your Costco book? I think like he's probably been, all over and it, like if i had my pick uh don't worry if it's been taken okay if, if it's already been taken i think uh defenestration of Prague. sure why not but casca <laughs> gets thrown out the window <laughs> <laughs> he does the throwing or he does the throwing okay yeah casca with zishka would be pretty cool uh oh, hook yeah. up with the Hussites and fighting uh fighting those dirty catholics and <laughs> that, that might be fun <laughs> It seems like he would hate the Catholics most of all. <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's a Protestant. He came that way. <laughs> does, does he? Does his sense of religion develop? Because one no, thing no, that's I, very I, shocking in this book is how much he's like, fucking Christians, that I stupid Jew cult. Like, that is the book's tone <laughs> well, throughout. You keep that, that also feels like a huge Jesus. missed opportunity in the books. It's like, just thinking of like, uh, you know, from uh, Jesus's death, if if it happened, probably did, uh, like to the explosion of Christianity, like under Nero's reign, like that would be so interesting to kind of like follow through one character's perspective. And it's just like, he gets thrown back into prison later and he's like, oh, Christians. And like, it, he it emphatically doesn't, doesn't give a shit. He this doesn't is a character care. that genuinely doesn't give a shit about the world. No, he doesn't care like that. The 
the magic Jewish person who made him live forever has a bunch of followers and it's spreading. Like it, it, it has no bearing on his story at all. Yeah, he does an Indiana Jones. Christians, I hate these guys. <laughs> as far as it goes. Can I tell you guys what, what, what I thought the biggest missed opportunity was in the book? Okay, yeah, so, but... so it's established early on, right, that his blood is poisonous, right? Casca's blood is poisonous. And when we go back and he's a gladiator, right, and he's fighting this uh, giant black version of Wayne, Wayne Grove from Pete, right, who, like, goes, goes into town and kills prostitutes and eats their hearts for fun. Um, it's established yeah. that he, like, you know, cannibalizes. And then digs them up to eat more of them. Victims, right. And, and all he's thinking the whole time is, like, how much he wants to kill Casca, you know, and eat his heart. So why didn't we get a scene where he cuts Casca, drinks his blood, and then has like a Walter Donovan at the end of Last Crusade thing happen to him where he like shrivels up and, and explodes or something oh, from drinking. Oh, because that would, have been, that would have been clever. That would have been set up and pay off. I'm saying that's like a Mission Impossible, nobody choose the explosive gum style disappointment. <laughs> Let me just say, I think the reason too is if you said that to Sadler, Sadler would go, nobody ate anybody's heart in the Coliseum. Like, he'd have this, like, half-addicted to, like, trying to be true, you know? Like, that didn't happen, and the, the, the gladiators didn't eat hearts. <laughs> yeah, okay, sure, Barry. You know, he just has that kind of, like, there's a very, like, lunk-headed fidelity to, like, uh, a certain kind of truth in this yeah, that should yeah. be fantastical. I really wish, like, I could have found an interview with Sadler where he's not that like buttoned up guy on a talk show like where he's just speaking yeah. casually like you know when you watch like uh like sterling hayden with a beard and like he just doesn't care if the camera's yeah. on him or not like I, I wanted to find that kind of interview with him and i just couldn't because like like it, it, you know that guy who's very rehearsed and formal and the these talk shows that you watch and he goes and sings like it's hard to just like picture him writing some of this hunched you know, over a typewriter like, like yeah like in. yeah you know and the, like i i wanted just to see like a little bit of that side of him just to kind of you know get where he's coming from a little bit more because it's so yeah. everything about this is strange he's strange the story's strange and it kind of <laughs> sticks out I, I think a little bit for that um it feels like, like the work of real moral sickness <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no he feels like he doesn't like he doesn't know how he feels about war is right. what this feels about, except this whole life has been devoted to war, and I'm only a soldier. What am I if I'm not a soldier? Right. It, it's right? not this kind of like, yeah. Yeah. war is hell, and hell is awesome kind of quality to well, the most effective like, scene, that bitch loved me. Well, the most effective scene is uh, that final battle that uh, uh, Tessa found where he's, uh, you know, in the second, he's second in the, in the row waiting to go up and, you know, join the ranks. And he's disgusted by all the things he's seeing, all the violence and carnage. But then he starts getting worked up and banging his shield and rhythm with everybody else. And he can't wait yes. to get up there. And once he's up there on the lines, he can't go back. He has to kill as many people as possible to, you know, sate his hunger, his war mongering yeah, hunger. Relief from it. Like, like, it seems like at that, after that scene, he wants to die, right? Like that was sort of the, yeah. there was this like suicidal quality and like he can't. He it's that up and does his Jeremiah. It's that like Twilight Zone, you know, a casino where I always win. That's hell. Like kind of feeling to it that you know he he's trapped by his own contentness with what he is, and that you know he's always going to be fighting. Like that's kind of the again, like it feels like a tragic character. Except I don't think he's like in the long run probably treated that way. It doesn't seem like, but yeah, I think there's a way to kind of 
don't know. It feels like if somebody said, I'm not going to make a franchise and make a pile of money off of doing a, you know, however many books and ghostwriters and just like put all that into like one novel, you know, it'd be like, you know, Johnny got his gut or something like, you know, it could be kind of, again, this other thing that it just doesn't feel explored or like, it, it seems like there's something there that should be struggled with and brought to the surface and kind of like reflected on that instead no, it's, like it's he's struggling with like, it but not bringing it to the surface exactly like instead i'm gonna make a pulp adventure story out of it and when there's like something really tormented there i think i mean it's clearly the work of a stone cold killer who would shoot a man in a national parking lot i think sure. there's no denying that <laughs> that, that is yeah. a fact do you know that the uh, the illustration on the cover uh, where it's showing Casca oh, in his uh, vietnam uh hat yeah. you know, and he's looking all disgruntled that's taken from a photo of sadler from like the 80s yeah. like exactly I, i've got a different exactly. edition where it's got like a ripoff of art from uh, spartacus that's drawn over and like a john oh, really? interior i but, have uh, i have the one john's talking about but like it's kind of weird that like the image that cover I, I know the one you're talking about puts in your head of Casca it's it's sort of at odds with the way he's described like I thought it was strange Casca's supposed to be in his late 20s right and like mm-hmm. he's, he's sort of ca- described as young but, I think like, early kinda, 30s I think he and Jesus are like practically the same age so like right. three. yeah I, I thought they like specified like 29 somewhere oh did they okay maybe uh, maybe yeah, yeah, I like, think I, they say 29 but like there's parts just like from the way he talks and like that image on the front like it doesn't read like a 29 year old like you know i'm 29 (laughs) so (laughs) i I don't know if that's just like uh, partly a generational thing like when when sadler was 29 that that might look different it's like when you see photos of those depression era kids and they all look like they're like 50 year old 12 year olds who would you cast as (laughs) casca That's tough because, like, you know, 29-year-old actors don't really have that, like, grizzled quality. Um, what about young Dolph Lundgren? Young Dolph Lundgren. I mean, if we're going, like, back-in-time actors, that, that would be yeah, something Yeah, I'm saying of any time. Any of any time. Okay, okay. Uh, I mean, like... I mean, for me, reading the book, it was impossible not to imagine Lambert just because it's so highly... Yeah, the Highlander-y. And Clancy and, Brown playing various roles. Oh, see, to me, because um, Sadler looks like uh, David Keith. To me, huh. so I kept picturing David Keith in it. <laughs> that would be that. That would actually probably be that. Could I could see that have actually happened too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like 1992, they finally make one with David Keith. Yeah, and he's and it, they change everything for it. He's no longer immortal. It doesn't take place in Rome. It'd be one of those adaptations. <laughs> Where it's just like he just hates Jews is the only. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I, I think if he did a film version of it, it would have to be like set present day, and then like it would be the little flashbacks and snippets. You wouldn't want to tell a story in the time period. You would try to keep it as much contemporary as possible, and just get like, I mean, Highlander kind of does that well. Uh, it has more in the past, but you know, sort of balancing like the different time periods with the present day, cutting back and forth. You know, and sometimes just like the little vignettes. That that's all you need. You don't need to tell like a whole self-enclosed story. It can just be like uh, Christopher Lambert getting caught up in a duel and getting stabbed a bunch of times and coming back for more you know like stuff like that's great and i think you know maybe in a, in a big franchise like this everything has to be like fleshed out into an adventure but um you know if you're doing a film of, of casca it would be it'd be good to have some kind of playfulness with the time periods and what he might learn and what he might pick up and 
we were all discussing this before we, we recorded. Uh, the perfect person, obviously, to do a cask movie. Someone who loves yes. military movies and loves the passion. Who has a general movie about military history. Horribly gored and tortured and wounded throughout and has a series. lot of problems with women oh we didn't even get to all the stuff with women in this book really like that, that yeah. there's yeah would be mel gibson notes but it's awful mel gibson we're mel talking gibson. about mel gibson here no this this has like mel gibson written all over it i think yeah like, and like it's sort of weird confluence of things that mel gibson is interested in and talented at like between the the militarism and the different periods of history and the you know weird christian stuff and a complete the, disregard for historical historical yeah but like vague historical interest the violence like you know like mel gibson would be all over this i would be shocked if he hasn't read this maybe he's he's a fan i don't know if you told me gibson hired barry sadler to write braveheart I would be like, oh, <laughs> right. wow, holy shit. <laughs> that, that sounds believable. <laughs> no, because Braveheart has like a fleshed out love story. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this one does too. It's like we get to read a whole love letter that right. we clearly are invested in after three paragraphs about it. Read this whole love letter. It's that's, like, that's probably shorter than the letter from the Roman general. In the, the, in the David book. Lynch's Dune movie, like... It, when they're trying to explain the love story and it's just like cramming plot into runtime and it's just like oh and they fell in love and like keeps moving on like it just has to tell you like a fact you don't even have any kind of investment in it um tell me about your like but for real so we, we talked about the the racism yeah. and gave it its due the misogyny of this book women literally are only whores yeah, other than the one he falls it in happens love with. three Every times book, Three times where someone, a woman who's attached to a guy, as soon as that guy's boned, she goes for the next guy in the room. And like he describes, well, she's got to look out for herself. She's got nobody now. She's got to find another man right away. And they're all just like, all of the rich women just throw themselves at him. Like every, the descriptions of women His comments are like, well, like there's no Salome. Like... Yeah. Salome. Salome. yeah, yeah, and there's a long description of Salome's dancing and how that lady knows how to swivel her hips and she should teach these whores how to do it. Contemporary voice, it sounds so yeah. sleazy. Like it's like some guy at a strip club telling you head like, above the wrist. Yeah, <laughs> and like Nero playing with the girl's boobs. That one scene, do you remember that in the yeah, Colosseum? Yeah. And he keeps he. I think he just keeps using. There, there's a line in the. In the gladiator fight, where doesn't it say like women climax when he kills him? Yes, yes. yeah, like <laughs> when the fight, the women climax and have to be held by back by the guards to avoid jumping into the bloody sand and fucking him right there. <laughs> I had to reread that like more than once because I couldn't believe that that was a sentence in this book. But that's a book that you read. Mm. I read that section and I'm like. Is Barry Sadler jerking it while writing this, or so angry at women while writing this? You I'm can't tell both. the difference. Like it, it, maybe both. Is <laughs> it his fantasy time. or the thing he hates most in the world? You know. <laughs> yeah, casino where I always win. That's, yeah. <laughs> well, have you read? Um, have you read any of Gary Jennings' books like Aztec or Journeyer? No. No. Like, I'm not even familiar with them. Okay. Um, I mean, if you ever want to do another one of these with me, yeah, uh, yeah, like, yeah. that might be an interesting follow-up because like Aztec, it's like some of the most beautifully like researched 
writing I've ever read. Like he, like he really threw himself into the research for I think like ten years working on it, and it's like every chapter it almost feels like a an editor's note. Like it's so the other direction of this, where it's like, okay, here's your violence, here's your sex, like lap it up, fuckers. I'm here for the research. Like it, it's such a like diametrically opposed approach to doing this like uh you know historical story where every chapter you have to have the hbo style sex and violence like there it feels as if he's trying to keep an audience interested who's probably not as interested in the stuff that he is as he is and here it's like this is the the, that's the show man this is what you're here for so i i don't know i just thought that was uh thinking of other authors approaches to this kind of a story How, this, how this, this belongs to a very specific subgenre of like dudes who subscribe to Soldier of Fortune. There, there are a lot like, of these books, know. though. Like, you know, if you ever go to the used bookstore, like, I swear you can find like, you know, just a wealth of novels like this that pick off the shelf and the pages are a bit yellow and they're published sometime in the 1970s. And you flip through and go, oh my God, like every couple pages, like, that's a, you know, I, I don't know. You go, if that's oh my God, like, I, you never know, maybe have I identified with anyone as much as Casca. <laughs> no, no, but, um, you know, like, I guess maybe that kind of an audience that's moved more onto the internet now, like, it seems like the Casca books, from what I was looking, a lot of it's, like, ebook stuff now. Yeah. Uh, it's and, now my dream. My ultimate goal is to walk into a used bookstore and find a Casca book and an LP of Ballads of Green Berets at the same time. <laughs> Buy them both together. But like, you- and go up, buy them together and be like, you know, I've been thinking of getting really into Barry Sadler. <laughs> oh, man. Thinking about, like, today's much, the day. Much- <laughs> Today is the day. Clerk at this used bookstore. John, what, 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 what a conflict would you send Casca to? Where would you put him? Um, good question. Um, a Thermapolis? It's maybe? hard to imagine. Do, do, do they go quite... Yeah, I mean that makes that's maybe an obvious choice, but be interesting to you know what see what an immortal who can't be killed would do in that battle. Obviously, what about yeah, you? Yeah, because there's I don't know. That's what I was saying. There's so many wars. It's hard to imagine him putting him in. You know what I mean? They, mm-hmm. There's something about it that they have to be like ugly where no side is really better than the other, and they ended badly. Right? What might be a good one is like Russian Civil War might be interesting you know especially like after yeah. after the tsar fell and you have the red and whites like you know that might be a good one or um i guess he's probably the panzer one he's probably in north africa so he probably didn't do a stalingrad one huh oh well that yeah. that's uh, the panzer soldier one it's it's on the eastern front i think it's okay. coming back from kursk so that's that's that one it's a bit like um yeah, it's a bit like Cross the Meyer, and I, I remember reading that novel kind of around the same time and it's it's similar and it's like um I don't know, I should go back and reread it before saying too much about see, it. But see, I want to. I want to put him in. Cynical, I want to like, put him in a in an idiotic war, like the War of eighteen twelve. Is right. what I want to <laughs> put Casca in a, one of those wars that's like the invasion of Granada in the eighties. You know, just right. like a complete farce of a war. I mean, that, that Canada, would Canada wins. Like, the invasion <laughs> of the Falkland. The invasion of the Falkland Islands. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Matt, the. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but the thing I'm about your book that you're going to write, the Casca book. Yeah. Don't give it. Well, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> the, the article I'm writing about, the, the, there's a really pointless war that I'm talking a bit about. And while I was researching that, I found out about the, uh, the soccer war. What's the soccer war. Oh my God. Okay. So, uh, I was reading about it as boring as soccer itself. 
No, it was started by a soccer game. Oh, it no. was uh, between El Salvador and Honduras in like 1960s. They went to war over a soccer game. Oh, whoa. I don't, uh, and like, I just, I was going through like all these uh, South American, Central American wars just for writing my article. And like some of them, like, uh, how is this not in history books? Or, you know, like there's these like big wars that are fought that you just never, ever hear about. Like yeah. what I think is like, interesting that I've never seen on film and you probably won't see just because of the political landscape is the war between Vietnam and China in uh, 1979. Yeah. Like, you know, how many hundred billion people marching into Vietnam and like this is gigantic war and there's no film about it from either side, really? Like, that's so weird to me. And just interesting that like you have a... You know, you have thousands of films about, uh, you know, American Vietnam War, but, you know, there aren't that many about uh, French in Vietnam or like, yeah. you know, the, yeah. it's just sort of interesting, like what what makes it into books or movies and what kind of gets forgotten about. I would now that I think my actual answer for this to put him into a war that is both a little ridiculous and also interesting. I would write a Casca book about the Whiskey Rebellion. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, that's in the uh, the late uh, 1700s. Uh, I don't even know if there were any casualties in that war, in that war, quote unquote. But uh, sort of American Revolution era, you know, people fighting over a whiskey tax. Uh, I think that would be interesting. I, I think probably by like Casca 98, they're, they're going to get there. They're going to just cover every war as the series goes on and on. But it would be to put them in a war where there's not actual fighting, I think is right. an interesting idea too. Like a bunch of like- Casca the filibuster and- Yeah. It, like if you did a Casca story that was like the, the movie Walker with Ed Harris, like that would be great. <laughs> you know, like something like that, but- uh, Unlike the movie Walker with Ed Harris. Oh no, I love that movie. But uh, like what you're saying about the, the Casca soldier character has a lack of imagination, but like, I don't know. Again, like I haven't read all these, but it just seems like in general, there's a, a sort of lack of imagination with what you can do with a character like that. Like there's so much potential I find in immortality for telling stories that are yeah. interesting in the way that you can kind of blend interesting histories together and blend the past with the present and play with that. Like I find all that really fascinating and that that's one thing I've always been sort of interested in is how we experience history and maybe trying to understand it in a more experiential way. And I feel like uh, it's sort of rare to actually see, you know, stories about immortality live up to that potential. It's usually not yeah. actually about that, but. Well, let's let's move into our desserts now. Our dessert okay. pairing, we had all our aperitif. I will go first with mine and we'll end with you, Martin. Okay. Um, I am picking Izo by Takeshi Miike from 2004. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> and this is, it is technically a sequel to uh, Hidokiri, the Hideo Gosha film from 69, about a samurai who's executed, Izo Okada. And the first scene of Izo of Miike's film is essentially the last scene of Gosha's film, ends with this execution, and then it's essentially becomes Casca, where this samurai becomes unstuck in time and wanders through history just as like a killing machine. There's no other, like he, he turns. Settle. To, <laughs> yeah. He like, murders he, it. <laughs> 
Yeah, he murders everybody. He murders Takeshi Kitano, right? Takeshi Kitano's in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember like renting this like still when it was on VHS tape and it's sort of being terrified by it. Yes, it's very surreal. It's like a musical. It's very strange. It's almost entirely incoherent because he'll like turn the corner, uh, like he'll kill some, you know, Yakuza and then turn the corner and be in a war right and there's nothing to it but the violence of this guy trapped in an eternity of violence <laughs> which is sort of what i was picturing with the casca books is just a person who goes from war to war to war to war this movie is is very surreal and kind of i think when you were talking about like would it, it would taking advantage of the ideas of immortality and doing something more literary that's this movie it's the beginning of when it's one of the first Mieke films i saw where he was trying to slowing down and trying to be something more than shocking you know like he is now like what he would sort of uh, become as a filmmaker where it just wasn't about the extreme tokyo shock stuff and you know like the nipples getting razor bladed off and people eating vomit like when he started doing um sort of more circumspect stuff this is one of the first ones that shows the filmmaker he becomes later in his career and i think it's a uh, you know, if Casca was not what you wanted, eat this for dessert, and maybe that'll fill you up finally. That's a really Scott, good recommendation. I might watch that this weekend, actually. This is um, a great recommendation. John, what is your dessert pairing? I, I went with the Jesus fantasy angle, and I'm going to recommend Behold the Man by Michael Moorcock. It's a story about a guy named Carl Glogauer, travels from 1970 back to 28 AD because he wants to meet Jesus. Yeah. And he gets there, he finds out that Jesus turns out to be this like mentally deficient hunchback who can only say his own name. And so he ends up stepping because he is so obsessed with the story of Jesus. He ends up stepping into the role of the Messiah and plays it out to its, to its end and essentially becoming Jesus. And at the end, instead of saying, Aloy, Aloy, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying it's, it's a lie. It's a lie over and over again as he's dying <laughs> on the cross. So oh, no. classic novella that was then turned into a full book. It's a good, great one. I recommend it. And how does he time travel? What's the mechanism of time travel in it? I don't remember, honestly. S speedboat. <laughs> Is it a time traveling yeah, speedboat? It's going to get up to 85 boat. miles an hour to <laughs> get back in time. <laughs> he hits a jump through a wormhole. That Whatever happens, his time machine breaks when he gets there, so he's stuck. And what is it? What, it's called Behind the Man or Behold Beyond? the Man? Behold the Man. I have that sounds to, great. Oh, yeah, that sounds phenomenal. I, I don't sounds think great. I've heard of it before. This is yeah, I I, this is the first I've heard of it. And Mr. Martin Kessler, what is your selection? Uh, the film Orlando, which I guess you could read the Virginia Woolf story too, since the film's based on that. But the, I really, really like the Sally Potter adaptation where yeah. you have. Tilda Swinton as Orlando, and it's also sort of immortality, and it has a bit of that like turn a corner and you're in a different time period feel to it. But it's it's linear; it doesn't jump back and forth or anything like that. And um, I, I think like just on the flip side of that, like eternal soldier stuff, where it's very gruesome and violent, like uh, Orlando's very playful and. Uh, not, it's, not, sexy. Uh, it's like a sexy movie it's sexy and it, yeah. it's not gross it's not you know any of that stuff and it's not uh, Casca. you know it, it, it's sort of hard to put into words why why like it's, it's not a work of extreme film. misogyny <laughs> right that, that helps you know it, it, i actually like it, on the contrary it, it's like orlando changing 
gender and sort of exploring that and exploring gender roles over time. And it, it's sort of going in the other direction. Uh, it, it was one of the first films to be shot in, um, I think it was shot mostly in Uzbekistan after the Soviet Union collapsed. And, you know, it, it's just sort of great seeing some of those locations. And it starts off under... Queen Elizabeth's rule, who's played by uh, Quentin Crisp as uh, Queen Elizabeth, which, like, that, that's really fun casting. And I don't know, it's a very breezy film. It's sexy, it's fun, it's, it's intelligent and yeah. kind of grabs you. And you sort of feel like at the end, maybe you've experienced time and history and all that in, in a sort of different way. So I, I like that film a lot. Yeah. Have you read the that's book ever, Martin? You know what? I haven't. I, I think it's just like one of those things where once you've seen the film a bunch of times, it kind of kills your incentive to read the book a bit. Yeah, I get that. Uh, but I, I'm sure I will someday. I'm just a, a very, very slow reader. I, I Like, you know, going back to the pulp fiction angle of these uh, podcasts that you're planning out, like, um, I have a hard time reading and I read slow, so it helps if something's kind of pulpy and fast-paced and not not too dense. <laughs> oh, it's Otherwise, perfect for cleansing yeah. the palate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, like Casca, a lot of a lot of problems with the book, but uh, it was, it's quick read. And I say that as, as like somebody who will, you know, take a year to read like a Stephen King book. I'm, I'm dyslexic and I'm kind of... Yeah, I'm a very slow reader too. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I like that you're taking that approach instead of... I don't know. There, there are other books that if you ask to maybe do a podcast on, I, I don't know if I could keep up or keep a schedule. So Casca, uh, at least it, it's a quick read. That's a perfect recommendation, man. I'm so yeah. glad that you introduced this to us, man. It is. Well, thank yeah. you for reading it. Yeah. No, I'm so glad to have this in my life. Really, really. I was, I was saying to John, like, I don't even remember what it was like before I had Casca. <laughs> You had a lot of great recommendations, but when you said this one, I was just like, what is this, man? <laughs> just, oh, and I was so right wrong, and I was 100% wrong. I found it at a used bookstore, like you're saying, okay. and I picked it up, and I looked at the back, and I was like, wait, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, it's not, it not what I was expecting at all. No, I, I think used bookstores must be a wealth of Casca books, a graveyard of Casca books, perhaps. I, I don't know. So, but if, they uh, live eternally unable to die. <laughs> they'll never <laughs> die. They'll just sit on those shelves. So if anyone listening is curious at all to read it, like you could probably find one pretty easy and yeah. like cheap. Too. I, like, uh, and I bet you don't have to start with the first one. I bet you can grab any one of these goddamn books. Yeah, like I said, I started with uh, The Phoenix, which is the 14th one, and that's just as easy an entry point. as. And that's probably actually a better entry point than starting with this one, because this is like fill-in-the-gaps kind of backstory stuff, which you sort of pick up along the way from another Casca adventure, I think, anyway, if you're sort of a clever reader, which yeah. I'm sure you are if you're listening to this. You say, oh, he knows Kung Fu. He must have met a... Uh, uh, well, usually because there's a, a little, paragraph explaining, like, hey, what, remember what... <laughs> what the little yellow man oh, no. <laughs> referred to over and over again. He must have met a little yellow man of indeterminate <laughs> origin. Oh, wise yeah. but strong <laughs> but Sadler would be like no it's okay because he calls him Big Nose so they're like friends right that's how <laughs> friends are that's like I said are. it's the rush hour dynamic years <laughs> before <laughs> um, or to bring it back to Mel Gibson it's the lethal weapon right right uh, well, <laughs> they're friends I they're would friends. say the bird on a wire but sure <laughs> <laughs> 
Goldie Hawn. Wait, wait, wait. Which one is Goldie Hawn? Martin, thank you for doing the show. We loved having you on. This is so much fun. We don't have a book picked for next month, right, John? Not yet, no. We don't doing yet because there's a couple guests floating around there, so we won't announce the next book. Watch for it on social media when we'll say, hey, if you want to read along, you can read along with it. And is there anything else you want to wrap up the episode, John? Uh, That's it. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Stick with us for the next one. Have a great time, everybody. 